Amen. Please be seated. Please turn with me in your Bibles to Galatians chapter 5. We are now entering the final third of this great letter of Paul to the Galatians, possibly the earliest letter he wrote. Uh, The first two chapters are really an introduction uh, to the issues that Paul is addressing. It's kind of a biography. Some scholars like to call the first third biography, the second third theology, and the final third, which we are entering today, application of the first two sections, applying to our lives what we have learned in the first four chapters. I think this is true. This is a good description of what we have as the structure of Paul's letters. Many of his letters are structured similarly. So we have his biography, his apostleship, his declaration of what the true gospel is in the first two chapters, and then uh, fleshing that out, showing uh, what is error and what is truth. And he really goes forcefully against the idea that you could add anything at all to Christ and still call it the gospel. It's not good news anymore if human works are mixed in. Uh, Most people won't say I make it all the way. At least most religious people won't say that they get to heaven totally on their own. God may help them, uh, but they'll give a mixture of their works with grace, as they define it, as being the means of them being right with God. And Paul writes to address this and say, that's not the gospel. That's not good news. Uh, that's, you're still dead in your works. No one is justified even a little bit by their works. And this is played out for us through chapters 1, 2, 3, and 4. And now we come to chapter 5. And we see a direct application of the gospel to daily life. Could not get any more practical or relevant for us. Yet if you are one who struggles with sin, one who feels guilty over sin, one who is, feels ashamed, feels disconnected from God, then God has a message for you right here. And that should be all of us. Every one of us can appreciate the power of sin in our lives and what it has done and how it's estranged us. And even though we're children, we feel like orphans so often. And I want to say very frankly to you that I believe personally and pastorally that you will not experience any lasting victory over sin until you grasp the true gospel of God's grace through Christ. There are many people at this hour in this in this country sitting in churches and they think they know the gospel, but they're struggling endlessly with this sense of not belonging to God and their sin has taken over a part of their life and it is ruling them and they think they know the gospel because they think they're saved from hell and they may well trust Christ. But in the end, they have not grasped the whole gospel and it has not set them free to love and serve God. This is what's so important about this passage before us as we begin the last portion of this of this great epistle it also prompted archibald alexander who was a a lawyer a politician a theologian a teacher at princeton back in princeton's faithful days which is a long time ago now in the early 1800s he wrote on this importance that we understand the gospel and its totality in particular the freeness of divine grace the fact that he gives us the merit through his son and uniting us with his son by faith. It's of grace, all grace. We don't contribute any of it. Listen to what he says. It's somewhat technical, but well worth reading as we head into reading the passage this morning from Ephesians 5. Listen to what Alexander wrote. He said, There is a defect in our belief in the freeness of divine grace. To exercise unshaken confidence in the doctrine of gratuitous pardon is one of the most difficult things in the world. And to preach this doctrine fully without verging towards antinomianism, is no easy task and is therefore seldom done. By antinomianism, he means anti-law or or no rules. But Christians 
cannot but be lean and feeble when deprived of their proper nutriment. It is by faith that the spiritual life is made to grow. And the doctrine of free grace without any mixture of human merit is the only true object of faith. Here, I am persuaded, is the root of the evil. And until religious teachers inculcate clearly, fully, and practically the grace of God as manifest in the gospel, we shall have no vigorous growth of piety among professing Christians. And he's right. How many have been trying and trying and trying? How well is that working? But as we rest in what has been done, then we see God do a work in our life and victory occur. Hear God's word. Galatians 5, 1 through 6. For freedom, Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. Look, I, Paul, say to you that if you accept circumcision, Christ will be of no advantage to you. I testify again to every man who accepts circumcision that he is obligated to keep the whole law. You are severed from Christ. You who would be justified by the law, you have fallen away from grace. For through the Spirit by faith, we ourselves eagerly wait for the hope of righteousness. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything, but only faith working through love. Let us pray. Lord God, you have become our heavenly Father through the redemption provided for us by Christ. We are in constant need of hearing the gospel message, the message of pure grace shown to us through Jesus Christ and his completely sufficient work on our behalf. Father, as recovering legalists, we admit to the constant draw to trust in things that we have done to make us right with you. Help us this hour as we study this passage to be truly set free of any trust or reliance in self. Please break the bonds of self-righteousness that hold us. Please liberate us anew by the preaching of the gospel. Emancipate us from the heavy yoke of thinking that we can somehow make ourselves right with you or even at least partially right with you without Christ. Free us from this. For the glory of Christ we pray. Amen. It wasn't that long ago that I turned on the television on Discovery Channel and saw one of the many wildlife shows that was going on. And there was this particular story that caught my attention. There was this small, tiny little port town. Most of its residents were fishermen and their families. And there was this dolphin that had somehow found itself tangled up in, in a fisherman's net in a pier that was in the port. And there was great concern that it would die if it stayed attached to this pier and tangled up and really entrapped by it. And so the townspeople kind of took to adopting it for a time, and they unwrapped it and they got it freed, but it couldn't swim because it was hurt. And so they built a little bit of a confine area in the port itself, didn't want to take it out of the water. It was used to that water, and, and so it kept it there and tried to nurse it back to health over a few weeks. And apparently because of the seasons and the way the tide worked, there was really a short window of time they had to see this dolphin get healthy and sent back out uh, in freedom on its own into the ocean. Uh, so they had to kind of work quickly to see it heal, but also had to wait. And so it was there, scared of the people at first, wouldn't eat anything, they fed it. But then after time, it started taking to the people and ate, got healthier and strong. And this day came after thousands of dollars had been spent, they even had 
a little bit of a fundraiser to cover the cost of taking care of this dolphin. And the day came where they were going to set it free. And it had been kept in the small confines for all this time. And, and here it was the day, and they had this huge gathering and this huge celebration. Uh, the national media even was there. And so they removed this barrier and, and kind of told it to go, and it didn't go. It just stayed right there. It just stayed smiling, looking for the next fish to be handed to it. And four days went by, and it wouldn't leave the port. They tried several times with divers to lead it on out in victory, you know, and it wouldn't go. They finally got a little dolphin collar and leash and let it all the way out. Uh, you know, someone on a video home camera got the final scene, you know. It's just this real, this real anticlimactic end to going off into the ocean. And I, I thought, I thought, how ridiculous. This is supposedly the smartest mammal, right, next to man. And it doesn't leave when it has the chance. It just stays there when it could be out enjoying the freedom that it could have. And instead, it just stays in this little confined area, even though it's free to do what it wants. It can't. It's freed. But it didn't live that way. And it would die if it would stay there. Yet, as foolish as that may seem, there are multitudes of brothers and sisters in Christ who have trusted in Christ. They profess faith in Christ. Yet they live the same beat-down and slave lives that they lived before, even though they've been freed. I think this passage helps us who find ourselves in that category, at least from time to time, living as though we are enslaved orphans rather than sons and daughters, freed by Christ. And what we see from the build-up before this is that the redemption provided by Christ is an act of emancipation, liberation. And the Christian life is a life of true freedom. True freedom. It says in verse 1, for freedom, Christ has set us free. It's freedom that God gave His Son for. He set us free. Well, let's consider what this term, this concept of freedom really means. It's, it's shaped to mean so many things today. You know, there's polls taken regularly in our country, and freedom is constantly one of the top American values. We want freedom. And I would suggest that that concept of freedom has morphed greatly over the years. So people have different concepts in their minds with regard to freedom and what it means. Look at verse 1. For freedom Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. A great emphasis is put on living out the freedom that has been purchased for us in Christ. Don't be bound again. Live free. Very simply, we are free from the bondage and free to love God. We're free from penalty of sin, the power of sin, and we're free to serve and to love God. It goes two ways. Free from what we deserve, because God's taken it and put it upon Christ. But we're also now, because of that, freed up to serve and obey God. This is true freedom. This is what the Bible says is freedom. Everyone has a sense of wanting freedom, but there's so many kinds of freedoms explained. And many for our, in our day would say that freedom is really, uh, it really means freedom to be left alone. Uh, freedom to do whatever, whenever, with whomever, and don't anybody tell me otherwise. That's what most people think freedom means. They just want to be free. What they mean is they want to be free from accountability. And the reality is there is no such freedom in existence. No one lives in such an existence. The one who claims he or she is not accountable to anybody or anything is actually giving proof of his or her slavery to sin and misery. Now, you can think of people in our day, in our culture, that, that seem to live out freedom. They, they live free, you might say. Uh, 
maybe because of power or influence, money, whatever it is, they have the ability to do whatever they want, it seems. They could buy anything they want. They can convince people to give them anything they want. And you would say on the surface, boy, that person lives free. But as soon as any scrutiny is brought to bear in their life, think of some of the celebrities that have just died recently. How many people watched the happenings of Michael Jackson's funeral and following aftermath and continuing aftermath and feel like you wanted to be that kind of free? That's total slavery. That's misery. That's usually what, if we put any real scrutiny on those who say they're free, that's really, it's slavery. It's total slavery. It's horrible. Life outside of Christ is nothing but slavery. And it may, we may mask it with stuff and we may numb ourselves, but in reality, and when it's put against eternity, it's utter misery. It's not freedom at all. The only freedom we can have is the freedom that the only true liberator could give, Christ. And the kind of liberation we need is not social. It's eternal, it's spiritual, it's real liberation. That's what we need. And the redemption provided by Christ is an act of emancipation. And make no mistake, the Christian life, rightly understood, scripturally guided, is a life of true freedom. What are we without Christ? Slaves to sin. Trapped. In actual sin that we're stuck in, addicted to, or we're stressed out about the sins that we've committed, that rule us. We're constantly in guilt. Christ comes and he takes that sin upon himself. He receives the punishment that we should have received. God accepts his offering because he's the perfect one and he gives us his righteousness. We're freed from our sins now. We're freed from the power of that sin any longer. We're freed from the penalty that is supposed to be coming to us but went to Christ instead. That's total freedom that liberates us now to live the way he directs us to live. For freedom, Christ has set us free, it says in verse 1. Christ freed you to be free, so be free. And this freedom spoken of by Paul is the only true freedom there is. It's the best kind. I, I want to be clear, when I say freedom in Christ, and I'm not saying it's like some, well, this is all we can get. It's the best kind of freedom there is. Because it's the only real freedom there is. Purchased by Christ. Think of what we're free from. We're free from sin. Yes, we still sin. But the fact that God loves you so much that he brings conviction into your life as his child doesn't cast you off when you sin. You're free in that sense. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. There's conviction because you're his child. He loves you. He doesn't want you to go that way. But that's altogether different from being slaves to the knowing penalty of our sin or avoiding the fact that it will come. We're free. From that, our old nature is being renewed. We have Christ's righteousness and our standing before God is clear. We're free from the fear of death that so grips every one of us to some degree. None of us wants to die. People stress more or less over it. But it's not something we like to think about. In Christ, there is a true freedom from that kind of paralyzing fear. Because we know that life has been purchased for us eternally. And our concept of how short this life is becomes uh, more understandable, more clear in our view, our hope, our waiting for the future becomes more joyful. We're no longer, we no longer need to fear death. We're free from this fear. And we're free from Satan, our tormentor. Yes, he still works, still roams around, but he's been defeated by Christ. And we've been equipped to do battle with him. God promises to do that battle for us. Earlier, Pastor Nathan led us in this. Uh, profession of our faith and we used 
the first section from the Westminster Confession of Faith, uh, of chapter 20. And this is a great section in this wonderful document because it captures the totality, not just what Paul says here in Galatians, but as a whole, what the Bible teaches about what it means to be free in Christ. I want no one to leave by misunderstand, and misunderstand what freedom in Christ means. By no means to mean free from rules or free from, from uh, obligations. But listen to what the, the writer said once again. In section 20, said the liberty with which Christ had purchased for believers under the gospel consists in their freedom from the guilt of sin, the condemning wrath of God, the curse of the moral law, and in their being delivered from this present evil world, bondage to Satan, the dominion of sin, from the evil of afflictions, the sting of death, the victory of the grave, the everlasting and everlasting damnation. All of those we're free from now. As also, in their free access to God, this is the beautiful second part, in their yielding obedience unto Him, not out of slavish fear, but of childlike love and a willing mind, all which were common also to those believers under the law, meaning that it was accessible to anyone who is ever trusting in God by faith. But what happened in this church in Galatia, and happens today all the time, is that there crept in this idea that you can mix with faith in Christ alone some human merit or works. And this is how we lose that freedom. Look at the second part of verse 1. We see what the freedom is, but now how do we lose it? In the second part of verse 1, it says, Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. Look, I, Paul, say to you, that if you accept circumcision, Christ will be of no advantage to you. This is a verse with much, much gravity to it. It's saying, look, listen, you've got to hear me here. Paul's saying to you now that if you accept circumcision, if you buy what these Judaizers say, that you've got to do this in addition to Christ in order to be right with God, if you buy that, then Christ will be of no advantage to you at all. You've just sold out the very message of the gospel. This is how we lose freedom. There are allusions in Galatians to different legalisms that had crept in that the Jews were bringing in, trying to put the new Gentile believers under these convictions. Circumcision was one, the one that's being addressed here explicitly. Certain holiday observations or observances were mentioned earlier. Certain dietary laws are alluded to. In each case, there was an implication that to be right with God, you had to do a certain thing in addition to trusting in Christ. But he says so clearly that any amount of trusting in works makes the work of Christ weakened and cheapened to the point where it is of no advantage to you. It's saying that the work, the total sufficient work of Christ ordained by God, forecasted, worked through, given of supreme value, that thing that God places such value on and looks upon and says, this is my son, I accept the sacrifice, I accept this, I raise him up again, and it proves everything there is to be proven about the sacrifice of Christ. But we say that our works have to be added to that. What do we say about God's will concerning what he did in Jesus? We say it wasn't enough. No, God, it wasn't enough. Your plan from, from eternity past, your exacting of it through biblical revelation, your constant progressing of this plan, Jesus' perfect life, everything he did in his obedience, active and passive, going to the cross, suffering like he did, uh, being humiliated by the ones he actually created, his dying, and you're saying that you accept this and raising him up again, that's not enough. I've got to do this too. Let's be real about what we're saying when we add works. We make Christ of no advantage to us because we totally miss how bad our sin is and how righteous God's righteousness is. 
It is an eternally damning mistake if we stay in it to believe we can earn our salvation in any way. This is why Paul writes with the vigor that he writes. In fact, this particular issue was so important that the apostles met to discuss it as the gospel was going out and missions were happening in the first century. Uh, in Acts chapter 15, you don't have to turn there if you want, you can, but it's, Ephesians, it's uh, Acts 15, and you had the apostles reporting back that these various places where the gospel was being preached and people were coming to Christ, the Jews were going in, these Judaizers, and doing just what they did in Galatia, and they're trying to add rites and rituals to Christ. Acts 15.1 says, But some men came down from Judea and were teaching the brothers, Unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. They were very explicit, uh, these people addressed in Acts 15. And after deliberating and considering the seriousness of this error, later in verse 10 of Acts 15, Peter says, Therefore, why are you putting God to the test by placing a yoke, uses the same word Paul uses in Galatians, by placing a yoke on the neck of the disciples? that neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear. No one who has ever tried to attain a right relationship to God by works of obedience has ever succeeded. Only Christ has provided this. No other person has ever been able to do it. And even the most religious of the Jews failed under this consistently. And any honest Jew of this day, like Peter, would say, look, that yoke our fathers couldn't even maintain. In fact, the reason why things are so messed up right now in the first century, this is, is because they couldn't maintain that and they keep trying to insist upon it. The message of the gospel has to be guarded. We must stand firm in this. How do we lose this freedom when we don't? When we allow for all the various things that we subtly allow to creep in and say that this is another thing you should do to be sure you need to do this or not do that. And we have our list of rules that we, be, we begin to trust in those rules and those, those things we did more than the message, the clear message of the gospel itself to us. And this is why Paul says, look, listen, I, Paul, say to you that if you accept circumcision, if you go down this road, they're suggesting Christ will be of no advantage to you. By accepting this, you're allowing the door is now open to a distortion of the gospel, which becomes no gospel at all. You can't add to Jesus, my brothers and sisters. You don't need to add to Jesus. It's totally sufficient what he's done for us. Believe it. There's a true story about a man who as a young uh, person obtained the autograph of Babe Ruth on a baseball. Sixty years later, he found the baseball in storage. And the signature was faint, but you could see it. And he looked at it and was amazed. And immediately when he told a friend, the friend said, that is priceless. You have no idea how much that is worth. Ruth only signed a certain amount of autographs. Uh, most of them, the balls that are out there that have, uh, have an official autograph, uh, a real autograph, have been accounted for. This would be off the charts expense. So the man saw it and faded, so he took a pen. And he outlined it so that you could see it. He brought it to the antique place. He said, this is worthless. You did this. No, I didn't. It was a, you did it. Well, maybe it was under there, but you added to it. So when we go to the Father, and we have the perfect, sufficient work of the Lord Jesus Christ, and we say, on top of that, I did this. 
what do we say? Christ is not enough. But in so doing, we have covered over the actual sufficient work and have decided to take it upon ourselves. And my brothers and my sisters, we cannot stand before God in ourselves. And this is what is meant in verse 4 when it says you are severed from Christ. You who would be justified by the law, you have fallen away from grace. Let us be very clear. This is not suggesting people who have been genuinely saved and are redeemed and adopted are now actually falling away. He's talking to a congregation who has been hearing this message. A congregation that is mixed with people who do not get this message. People who profess faith in Christ but are confused and struggling about it. And those who, who understand and rest in it. There's a mixture at any given time. And he's simply saying this is a gospel message. We say we believe this. We corporately believe this and confess this as a church. But I'm telling you in the midst of us, there's some here who really do believe something they do is making God love them more. And for you, you're severed from Christ. You've fallen from the grace that has been preached and spoken of and experienced by this community. You've fallen from it because you're holding on to self. And you want to stand before God clothed in your righteousness because Jesus' righteousness is not enough. You are severed from Christ who would be justified by the law. You have fallen from grace. Martin Luther wrote commentaries in most of the books of the Bible. I think Galatians is his best. Not his technically best with the language and, and so forth. It's one of the early ones he did comments on. The reason why I like it the most, though, is it's so personal. It is a book that was profound in his own freedom in Christ. And he writes with regard to this passage the following. He says, in this passage, Paul again disparages the pernicious notion that the law is able to make men righteous before God. A notion deeply rooted in man's reason. All mankind is so wrapped up in this idea that it is hard to drag it out of people. Paul compares those who seek to be justified by the law to an oxen that are hitched to the yoke. Like oxen that toil in the yoke all day and in the evening are turned out to graze along the dusty road and are at last marked for slaughter when they no longer can draw the burden. So those who seek to be justified by the law, Luther writes, are entangled with the yoke of bondage. And when they have grown old and broken down in the service of the law, they have earned for their perpetual reward God's wrath and everlasting torment. Chapter or verse 5. Do not submit again. Do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. The picture of this beaten down beast of burden that is conjured when we think of a yoke. Wearing the yoke all day, every day, until it is no longer useful, then you're slaughtered. Which are you? Do you seek to be right with God by a mixture of your obedience and God's grace in Christ? Do you seek to be right with God through Christ and his righteousness alone? A pastor I admire said it well. She's talking to the church. It's easy for us just to think of all those people who are trusting in their good works in other religions, other places. But Paul's writing to people who profess to be Christians. One pastor said that the great divide is not found between those who call themselves Christians and those who do not, although there is obviously a divide, but rather between those who, whose hope of heaven is in Christ alone and not in any way in their own efforts and between those who think in one way or another, to one degree or another, they hold their salvation in their own hands. That's where the divide is. 
Well, how is freedom maintained? We know what freedom is. We see how it is that we lose it. But verse 5 and verse 6, well, really back to verse 1 first, and then verse 5 and verse 6 show us how freedom is maintained. Look first in verse 1 to see how we maintain this freedom. We're speaking of freedom, losing freedom. Well, how do we maintain the freedom that is ours? Well, knowing the truth about freedom in Christ is the beginning point, no doubt. Verse 1, for freedom in Christ, freedom Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to the yoke of slavery. There's a volition, there's a will issue here, powered by the Holy Spirit, no doubt, that we stand firm in the truth of the gospel. We stand firm, therefore, do not submit to the yoke of slavery, knowing the totality of our freedom, being clear about what the scripture says about it, constantly reminded about it. It's essential to living out our freedom in Christ that we be reminded of it regularly. The reason why the Lord, uh, or we have, He has ordained for us communion and baptism. These are means of grace, ways in which we are given us depictions of the grace of God to us. It's a, it's a passive thing. It's something God does that we receive passively. He does it. He initiates it. It's His doing. We need this means of grace. The Word of God. The people of God. Encouraging us. And this term, standing firm. It's, it's sort of like you're standing in the, on the beach there and you have your children with you and there's waves crashing in and you have to tell them to stand strong, be stable in it, because if you don't, the wave will knock you over. And for Paul to say stand firm means that he understands that there will be a tide that comes against us. There will be a wave that comes against us. And it's not all the world religions all the time. It has to do with this, even in the church, this constant need for us to add to Christ's righteousness, and that will come against us, and we have to stand firm and do not be enslaved to that again. Freedom is maintained by knowing the truth first, but look at probably what is even more important. So we have to know the truth, no doubt, but we can't know it unless God makes us to know it. We have to rely upon the Spirit of God to sustain us in this knowledge. Verse 5 says, For the, through the Spirit, by faith, we ourselves eagerly wait for the hope of righteousness. Do you see how that is ordered? It's important for through the Spirit by faith. It doesn't say conjure faith, work real hard at faith, muster up faith, produce faith, believe real hard. It says through the Spirit by faith. Yet another allusion to the fact that it's the Spirit of God who gives you the faith to hold on to Christ. It's all of God. Even the faith that you express by professing it is given to you by God. One of the great ministries of the Holy Spirit is to give us a spirit of adoption, a sense of belonging to God through Christ. But connected to this ministry is a constant sense of our freedom in Christ alone. And freedom is maintained by the attesting ministry of the Holy Spirit, specifically the Holy Spirit giving us faith in Christ says in, the, in verse 5, we ourselves eagerly wait for the hope of righteousness. Notice that it does not say we eagerly strive for the hope of righteousness or work for the hope of righteousness. We wait for the hope of righteousness. Spirit of God gives us faith in Christ to be justified. Spirit of God gives us a sense of our adoption and redemption. The way our freedom of our freedom is through the Spirit of God. Freedom in Christ, maintained by the ministry of the Holy Spirit. And notice what the outcome of this is. This is so important, we get this. The outcome of living freely in Christ in verse 6. For in Christ Jesus, 
Neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything. So whether you want to promote the idea that you have to be circumcised or promote the idea you don't have to be, you're missing it. Either of those, those aren't the issues. But only faith, which we know is given by the Spirit, working through love. Faith working. You know, I didn't have time to have as part of our, our profession of faith the whole chapter 20. Section 1 was long. But there's some great sex, great uh, further comments made in the confession in chapter 20. Listen to what the third section said. Because this brings us to this point of faith working itself out. With regard to our liberty, our Christian freedom, they who upon pretense, it's a warning now, a pretense of Christian liberty do practice any sin or cherish any lust, do thereby destroy the end of Christian liberty. In other words, warning, don't think that because we're free in Christ that that means you're free to do whatever you want. That's not at all what the end of freedom in Christ means. In fact, the end of freedom in Christ is that we're free to serve and obey Him. That's the actual end goal. That's how it works. As you come to grips with the true freedom you have, and you're freed from guilt and shame, now you're free to serve your Father, not out of slavish fear, but childlike love. That works. Slavish fear does not. Not for long. Being delivered out of the hands of our enemies. We might serve the Lord without fear and holiness and righteousness before Him all the days of our life, it says in the Confession, chapter 20, section 3. Faith in Christ is a gift of the Holy Spirit. Faith given by God will work. Faith given by God will express itself. Faith given by God will bear fruit. Faith given by God will produce obedience. Faith given by God will transform the enslaved sinner to a grateful child. Faith given by God will emancipate the prisoner. Faith given by God will compel us to follow Christ and imitate Him. And only the message of free grace will ever show transformation in the life of anybody in real victory. Only that will work. For in Christ Jesus, it says, neither circumcision nor circumcision, uncircumcision counts for anything, but only faith working through love. Let's pray. Father, help us to be the free men, women, and children that Christ has made us to be by His emancipating work of redemption. Help us to know that in Christ we are impervious to any condemnation, that no one can take us from Your hands. Lord, we are free in Jesus. In a sense, we are already in heaven, already living forever, starting that eternal life. Help us now to live accordingly. Give us an eagerness while waiting for the full realization of what is already ours in Christ. And therefore, compel us to give ourselves to lives of faith expressing itself through love. Lord, make this freedom in Christ to be the principle of our lives so that we might bring glory to you. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Let's respond together with a wonderful hymn, 508. Let's stand and sing. Jesus, lover of my soul, verse 1 and verse 2, as we prepare for the Lord's Supper.